0: is quite different than the culture at IBM or the culture in a university setting. And so what he tried to do is try to figure out how does our culture match up with the kind of company or organization we choose to be. At Airbnb, they're all about relationships and gatherings and so forth. So you would have a happy hour area where everybody at 5 o'clock at Airbnb would go and get together and spend time together you can imagine there's not a happy hour probably on a Navy submarine. It's a very different culture. But once again, what he's simply saying is culture is not a one-size-fits-all, but you want to make sure your culture also meshes well with the mission of the organization. Because to have dissonance there between the culture you're trying to create and the mission you're trying to achieve really will result in one of those two definitely not flourishing.
1: What, what are the ways that a team leader can crea- create a successful culture?
0: I think trying to make sure that the people they bring into the organization actually believe in and are passionate about that particular endeavor. I'll give a University of Florida example. Obviously, there's the blocking, tackling certain skill sets somebody might need in an administrative position. But when somebody would ask me, Brian, what do I need to know or do well to be a great academic advisor? I would say You need to love being with students. I mean, if you don't love being with students, all the skills in the world won't really work well. So when you interview that person and talk about culture, what are you passionate about? What gets you excited and motivated? And I give my my own personal example. If I'm with bright, motivated young people, I'm happy. That's one of the reasons I chose to become an Army chaplain. I loved being an infantry platoon leader. I loved being a company commander. But to get promoted from captain to major, my next job was going to be doing operations orders, logistics reports, you know, tracking communications and logistics issues. I was not going to be with young soldiers any longer. And so I knew that I was not going to fit in those new roles. That's when I decided if I became a chaplain in the military, it would keep me with young soldiers a lot longer. And so I try to tell people, follow your passions because you're going to be detrimental to an organization and its culture if you try to fit into a role that doesn't fit your passions.
1: You know, it's interesting because as a lawyer, we, we tend to think we can do everything well, <laughs> and we can't, of course, right? But um, I, I think that I'm a bright person and I could probably learn to do certain things. However, my natural inclination uh, is to be a visionary to come up with mm-hmm. new ideas and to, um, but I, I like to have an implementer uh, to take over and, and, you know, come up with the idea and have somebody there who can really uh, implement the idea. In the past, though, I think I did too much of trying to take both roles on and the, the implementation, uh, I couldn't do both. Is sure. The, the bottom bottom line, right. and um, and I, as I've grown, I've started to realize that I'm not doing my team members a favor. I'm not doing myself uh, a favor by not uh, learning to delegate um, different tasks, particularly those that someone else can do better.
0: Sure. And delegation, it requires a couple of things, Jeffrey. It requires um, humility, and it requires confidence in the people you've chosen. Uh, I've seen a lot of folks who are afraid to delegate but I thought to myself why are you afraid to delegate because this is the person you picked. Teddy Roosevelt often said give a person a job and just get out of their way and that's really great advice and a lot of people are sometimes reluctant to heed it Um, but again your organization will not grow if everybody's always looking over their shoulder wondering am I doing it the way the boss wanted me to. General Patton said once again don't tell a soldier how to do something Tell them what needs to get accomplished, and let that person go, and they'll surprise you with their ingenuity.
1: Well, how do you do that in the military when you have to have uh, everybody functioning like a a football team, really, a team? And you know, it's like uh, I'm the quarterback, and I have confidence in my linemen not to, uh, you know. let somebody in to run me over and knock me out of the game or whatever. So how do you you accomplish that?
0: I'll give you two thoughts that come to mind. One, Jeffrey, is in the military. We are given task and purpose. That's two parts of a mission statement, task and purpose. If you just give somebody a task, that's not the most important part of the mission statement. It's the purpose. So in other words, if a commander says, here's your task and here's your purpose, it's okay to deviate from the task. You give that person flexibility because they understand the purpose they're trying to achieve. Also, we have a part of our paragraph op order called the commander's end state. In other words, once we're done with this mission, the end state is we will have achieved A, B, and C. So we give the leaders the ability to take the initiative to achieve A, B, and C, even if it's not really within the task that you gave that individual. So we also have the other component, which is great non-commissioned officers. That's the secret sauce for the U.S. military is we have non-commissioned officers who really take the orders and execute the mission. We have a phrase that says NCOs make it happen. And the reason why our military has always been successful is we have great people who understand how to take orders but execute the mission within the commander's intent. They understand the commander's end state, and we give them the flexibility to be ingenious and take initiative within that end state.
1: So within a law firm context, um, we always want to have a certain standard and quality of service. Uh, Is it challenging then to give people the flexibility to figure out how to get it done when you all, you know, your purpose, like you say, purpose, you know, the purpose is deliver exceptional service on a consistent basis, uh, and help our clients uh, through difficult times, okay? Sure.
0: Well, one way a commander might do that is says, I will underwrite. I will underwrite good initiative. I will not underwrite poor judgment. So once again, a poor judgment could be you really weren't doing all you could to achieve the commander's end state. That's hard to underwrite as a commander, and you probably shouldn't but you should underwrite good initiative. It's a new approach to achieve that end state. But as soon as you start to not underwrite good initiative, then no one takes good initiative. And the commander should not be surprised when the end state isn't achieved.
1: Well, it's, um, you know, something that I'm passionate about is trying to develop uh, uh, to be as good a leader as I can. Um, And it's very... Um, I get excited about re- you know reading leadership books, mm-hmm. and you know I read it, and I go, oh yeah, that's what I need to do, and you know, and then you get into the implementation of it and the actual practice of it, and you really need to have everybody rowing in the same direction mm-hmm. to make it work.
0: Yes, and that's what Commanders End State does. Commanders in State says we want to achieve X and Y by the end of this initiative. And so you can imagine everybody's rowing in the same direction, but what if you row in that direction and there's a dam? Okay, well, I can't row in that direction anymore, but I know the end state. I know where I'm supposed to be, so the commander won't be upset that I'm deviating direction for a moment. I'm going to get around this roadblock, and then I'm going to continue to row and row. But somebody who really understands initiative would say, wow, I came to a block in the road. I can't move. I shouldn't deviate from this direction. This is not going to be well-received. A commander who's worth his or her salt will say the obstacle was there. None of us knew it, but you understood the end state, and you found a way around the obstacle to achieve the goal. Yeah, you
1: know, I read this great book, The Obstacles of the Answer. and uh, ah, there
0: we go. You
1: know that book? Sure, yes. Yeah, anyhow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it deals with, uh, you know, it, it, so in our um, law practice, what we want to do is have, you know, bright, people who have good instincts and can do what, what you're mm. describing, which is because yes. there's always obstacles, right?
0: Sure. Good instincts would be what John Maxwell describes as the law of intuition. This is someone who seems to have the ability to look around the corner, kind of anticipates the challenge. As Wayne Gretzky would say, he skates not to where the puck is, where the puck is going to be. And once again, when I talk about the laws of leadership, you know I talked about John Maxwell and the 21 leadership laws. I think it's important for folks to review those and understand, you know what, I can't be good at 21 things, but I sure hope that I have members of my team that they've got those two leadership tools in their toolbox, and I've got these five in my toolbox. And that's why delegation becomes very, very helpful. You turn to people who you know on your team can utilize those leadership laws well, and having all 21 on your team makes for a really, really effective situation.
1: Well, I'm glad you said that, so I don't have to le- learn to be great at all 21. <laughs> I just have We don't to- have time. <laughs> I don't have time. And, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, fascinating because um, you've devoted your life, really, to learning about um, leadership and ethics. Uh, talk a little bit about how ethics and leadership uh, coexist.
0: Sure. Well, you know, in my leadership class that I teach and in my ethics class I teach, I have a common book across both of those disciplines that talks about moral courage. And the challenge with moral courage is, like any other muscle or any other skill, it needs to be cultivated and developed. So it's interesting when I teach my class, I tell my students I'm going to give them two gifts in the ethics class. And I'd encourage you to think about this and have your listeners as well. I tell my students, by the time you're done with this course, you'll be able to answer the following two questions effectively. Question number one is, how would you handle an ethical dilemma in our industry. And question number two is giving an example of where you've shown moral courage. For the students, they can stumble through question one a little bit, but they realize they've got to get a better answer. They've got to get a process to identify and handle ethical dilemmas. But, Jeffrey, it's so surprising how many students can't give one example of where they've shown moral courage. Now, they can often say, I can give you a couple of examples where I wish I had shown moral courage, but moral courage is what I call the gas in the tank of a really, really effective car or a tank, for example. And so I try in my class to also help students develop moral courage, because that's what you need to actually take an ethical dilemma and actually confront it and deal with it effectively.
1: You know, we talk about that uh, a lot in our office, that Um, the our our true north star is service to our clients and that we we always we use the golden rule as Mm -hmm. as an example it's like nowadays it's very common when you uh communicate with a business that um there's some uh, you know uh, i would say a person answers the phone and makes you feel like they don't really care um they're going through the the, the routine. Sure. Uh, they aren't warm and welcoming. And, uh, you know, we, we call our uh, receptionist, you know, the ambassador of first impressions. Yes. And t- talk a little bit about how important you, you think that is in, you know, creating a successful business environment, uh, to have everybody on the team create, uh, you know, an, an exceptional environment where... Uh, your your clients, in our
0: case, become raving fans. Well, I've heard people often say, people might not remember what you said or how you said it, but they will always remember how you made them feel, and that's a really really powerful idea. In other words, every interaction, how's that person going to feel having spent any amount of time with me? And really, you can't afford for that frontline person to have a bad day. Uh, As an Army company commander and as an Army chaplain, I would take my chaplains aside and say, you know what, you're an Army chaplain, you're not allowed to have a bad day, at least not in the eyes of the soldiers, because you are a source of motivation. You are a source of inspiration. If you're having a bad day, talk to me. (laughs) Come talk to me, you know. (laughs) Or if you're you're having a bad day, just (laughs) make sure that you are not going to be a front-facing person until you find a way to get over whatever you're dealing with. But the first person who answers the phone in your business, they can't afford to have a bad day. They can't say, hello, hi, can we help you? I mean, at that point, you've already lost the battle with that individual. So, once again, you can't have a good day every day, but you can't afford to have a bad day if you're in that front-facing position with clients. Yeah,
1: I I mean, for us, uh, it's so important because we're in a highly competitive space, and it – you know, it's like when somebody calls, we may, you know, have been, we've invested a lot to get that person to call. Yes. Okay. It may be, you know, that we met somebody and had a conversation with them and they made a good impression and they go, Oh, you know, that's the kind of lawyer I want to have. And then when they have the need, you know, they give us a call. It may be in marketing as far as, you know, advertising, things like that. However, Whatever the circumstances are, I try to impress on whoever is answering the phone. You know, that, that call may have caused co- co- we, we had to invest $5,000 to mm-hmm. make that phone ring for that case. And uh, you can't uh, be casual uh, about, uh, you know, answering it in a uh, less than focused manner.
0: And I do think one skill set that is often not described as a skill set is the skill to listen. People talk about communication skills. Listening is one of those skills. And Stephen Covey would say, seek first to understand, then to be understood. And I think that's a very important thing for anybody when the customer walks in or a new student walks in or as a chaplain when somebody walks in. I need to seek first to understand that person. And if I do that, and that person understands I've been receptive; they'll be really interested in hearing from me and the ways I can help them out.
1: You know, it's amazing. I, when did Stephen Covey wrote Seven Habits?
0: Uh, oh, probably I think in the early '80s. Yeah, I think it probably was early, maybe 86, 87. And what's amazing is how relevant it is today. It is. Well, as a chaplain, I would go to the to scriptures and say, "There's nothing new <laughs> under there's, no- there's nothing new under the sun." Um, which is why I love teaching ethics, because I think it's a timeless skill uh, that regardless of technology, AI, bioethics, et cetera, at the end of the day, ethical decision-making comes down to identifying dilemmas that we confront. I have a book that I work with, and I'm happy to talk about that if you'd like me to. Yeah, go ahead. Well, there's a book I use called The Business Ethics Field Guide. And don't let the word business throw you off, but the way this book got put together is I had the lead author, good friend of mine, he would have his employees and his also his students type up a three- or four-page dilemma they confronted at some point in their career. After teaching MBA students for a whole decade, he had over 500 case studies. And somebody asked him a magic question. I call it a magic question. He asked, Dr. Agle, how many different kinds of ethical dilemmas are there? Now, he'd never had this question before, so he had a PhD student take all 500 case studies and said, I have a project for you. I want you to please place these in like buckets. Give me a taxonomy. And after doing this analysis, they identified 13 distinct ethical dilemmas. Now, when I heard that, Jeffrey, my army brain thought 13 battle drills. In other words if you can teach somebody to identify the dilemma they're in and you can give them a prescribed course of action they're a lot more confident now engaging imagine the gator defense if we said you know what tennessee they run 13 plays on offense and if we can see hey this is play number five we are then ready for that particular issue but when i tell my students there are 13 distinct ethical dilemmas you can immediately see the courage build hey I can learn to use 13 tools, and when you do that, guess how many dilemmas there are in the field of law. There are 13, 13. <laughs> in the field of medicine. There are 13. Give, give us one.: our, two, our, Sure, of course. Uh,
1: right I'd love to. Hear yeah, a great
0: example would be ethical dilemma number two in this book is "Made a Promise, and the world has changed." That happens all the time in our personal life and professional life. As an army chaplain, imagine me promising my young son a weekend to the beach with his friends, but I have a soldier who gets in a car wreck. And my commander wants me to go to the hospital to be with this injured soldier. Well, I've made a promise and the world has changed. I've got to find a way to balance these two competing interests. And that's where the idea of moral imagination comes in. So in that example, Jeffrey, my students always fall in the trap of, well, you have to tell your commander no and not go with the soldier, or you have to tell your son no. I said, no, my commander really wants a chaplain there. They said they want me there. But imagine if I went to my boss and said, hey, sir, I've got a family event. How about I call another chaplain I know well and send her to the hospital? Would that be okay? Hey, Brian, I don't care if it's you or some other chaplain. I just want a chaplain there with the soldier. But made a promise in the world has changed would be one example. Another would be loyalty. And I see this is a big challenge right now where someone is asking you to be loyal to them, but they're asking you to be loyal to them maybe at the expense of loyalty to an organization or the organization's values. Another example would be intervention. You see something that's wrong. Should you be the one to intervene? How do you intervene? Another example would be suspicion but not enough evidence. You smell smoke, and you think something's wrong, but maybe nothing is wrong here. And how you investigate that or how you report it can be very very challenging so how do you
1: how do you, would you go
0: about it uh, well I'll, I'll give you an example but but notice i didn't say one of the 13 dilemmas is stealing okay one is lying okay one is being deceitful mm-hmm. many people i think in these days misunderstand bad behavior with poor ethics no that's bad behavior Ethics is really ethical dilemmas. So it's not the Ten Commandments. Not, not at all. I mean, that's not, those are not ethical dilemmas, exactly. Mm. But suspicion with not enough evidence, uh, the first step in every single ethical dilemma is gather the facts. And how you gather the facts can be very, very important. I had a colleague at work, for example, who uh, told me that he had gotten a job offer and he was going to be moving on with his family But he didn't want anybody at work to know yet. I said, hey, sounds fine. Congratulations. Happy for you. You'll be the one to share the news. Two days later, he came into my office, and he was upset and angry. And, Brian, how could you tell people that I got this job? You promised that you weren't going to share with anyone. And I said, well, I didn't. Well, you must have. I only told you. I said, yeah, but you told me like 10 feet away from an open office door. And then he realized, wow. Wow. It wasn't you. It must have been somebody overheard the discussion. So, again, suspicion but not enough evidence. And how you handle those delicate matters are are really, really important. Yeah, in a business sense, uh, a
1: business setting, when an employee has done, you think the employee has done something that you wouldn't approve of, uh, that would apply, right?
0: Yes, and you shouldn't rush in with an assumption. I'll give you an example about how I work with students on the blocking and tackling of ethical decision making. Um, many students jump to conclusions very, very quickly. And, and that's kind of our human nature, to take in our information and to try to make quick decisions because sometimes they are of the essence. But I give my students the example, imagine someone abroad had a few drinks and then hit, got in a car and hit a pedestrian. Did this person hit the pedestrian voluntarily or involuntarily? Now, almost all students jump to the word voluntarily because the person was drinking. And I'll say, drinking what? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) We're we're drinking right now. This is water. We're having water. But the students say, well, I just assumed it was alcohol. Yes, I know this is the problem with many ethical. We rush in with information we think we know, and we don't take a step back and gather all the facts. What if I had said the person had one glass of wine, but the person was jaywalking? Now, who do you really think is responsible for the situation? Well, Dr. Ray, this is all new information. No, it's not new information. It's unknown information. You didn't take the time to gather the facts because gathering facts and making assumptions based upon those facts is really important before you then jump in to try to develop courses of action to address the dilemma. So gather facts, make reasonable assumptions, and then develop courses of action. We do that in the military. That's how we do the military decision-making process. Gather facts, make assumptions based upon those facts, and develop courses of action for the boss. I tell my young students, you're not going to make the call most of the time for an ethical dilemma. You're going to identify one and go to your boss and say, hey, here are a couple different ways I think we could solve this. You're the boss. Which one should we go and pursue?
1: You know, that's great because uh, we're developing a uh – strategy and uh, f- actually a, a form right that we ask our uh, if a team member sees a problem, they're supposed to identify uh, the problem that they perceive then come up with three possible solutions mm-hmm. and then identify which one they think is probably the best solution.
0: Hey I say mm-hmm. never go to your boss with the problem. Unless you have a couple ideas on how to solve it, you're the one who identified it. You're the one in the trenches. Um, And we saw this in Iraq as a great example. Um, Nobody anticipated IEDs. We just didn't think we would have IEDs. And um, one way that IEDs go off is sometimes they sense heat, the heat of an engine. And we had a soldier develop what we ended up calling the rhino. The rhino was these glow plugs— that are in the engines of the vehicles, they get really, really hot. And so the soldier says, let's put a bunch of glow plugs about 10 feet in front of our vehicle. So there's almost like the feeling of a fire, something very, very hot in front of the vehicle. And the IED, if it was sensing heat, would blow up in front of the vehicle versus under the vehicle. That was something that was figured out by a young 19-year-old kid, and it saved lots of lives. But that's where the good ideas come from. They come from the trenches, and I promise you, you need to have an, a, a way for those ideas to bubble up to people who can then make, make this good idea go out across the organization. Well, it saved listen, a lot of lives.
1: Uh, uh, I've been talking with Dr. Brian Ray. And with your permission, Dr. Ray, we're going to have to have you back for Part 2 because we have a second guest on here, and I'm so enthralled with
0: our interview, I feel like we're only scratching the surface. Well, I think Part (laughs) 2 could be a great discussion on building on the idea of the 13 ethical dilemmas, how we develop moral courage to identify and address those 13 dilemmas. It would be a great show. Well,
1: that's great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Brian Ray, uh, this has been an absolutely uh, fascinating and eye-opening discussion for me. I hope everyone else enjoyed it. We're going to take a three-minute break, and then we're going to be back on Meldon Lawn Friends. And thank you again, Dr. Ray, for joining
0: us. Thank you, sir. Go Gators. Go Gators.
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh. I can't even believe this. Look. Look what you have done to my truck! Excuse me, it's your fault, it's not my fault. Yes, I... it is your no, fault! Not, not I am calling, calling Jeffrey Meldon from Meldon Law. So I'm going to call Jeffrey, my husband. Meldon Law, this is Jeffrey speaking.
2: Jeffrey! This person is no, here! Honey. This person might here, might...
1: New client? Yes, but this one might be a little tricky. When you're a member of the Gator Nation, you know what it means to never back down. Meldon Law has been a proud supporter of the Gator Nation since 1971. Two forces that won't back down. As the old saying goes, if you can't beat them, join them. We still hear it the sound of victory the joy of being Hello. part of something great and while things may not be the same right now we haven't gone anywhere if you bleed orange and blue then melden law is the firm for you We are here at the University of Florida where Albert and Alberta are competing in the Gator penalty shootout. Albert is ready to stop the shot at all costs. What a disaster. Luckily, Maldon-Law is the only <laughs> official welfare partner of the Florida Gators. If you have suffered any injury, do not worry because
2: Maldon-Law is going to help you with your recovery. Maldon-Law doesn't back down until they reach their goal.
1: Alberta, I understand you were witnesses to a crash. Can you tell us about the accident? When you're in a crash, it's important to get witness statements immediately after the accident. Whether you're in a car, truck, motorcycle, scooter, or even a golf cart accident, at Meldon Law, we won't back down. And I was in an accident. Someone ran red light and hit me, and I was hurt. You don't know where to turn. Luckily, I called Jeffrey. These big insurance companies, they don't want you to win. They truly don't. But Jeffrey and his firm and the people that work here, they just really fight for you. You call the law offices of Jeffrey Melvin because you're going to need help, and they will help you.
2: Can you hear me? Okay. Yes. Doing very well. How about yourself? Perfect. Nothing in particular at all. I am happy to talk about whatever.
1: It's 4.44 right now. Welcome back to Melden Law and Friends. What a great show we've had so far. And it's going to continue uh, right now. Um, Our guest is Raven... Chris Afuli. did I get that right?
2: You did. It looks a lot more complicated than it really is, but Raven Chris Afuli, honestly, I take any variation of it, though.
1: I love it, and and so Raven, you have a very interesting uh, background. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners a, a little bit about uh, what you've done in the past and where you're going?
2: Absolutely, I'd be delighted to. So my background is in events. Uh, I am a event planner, and I went to UF for my undergraduate degree, got my degree in event management. And then I did corporate events for eight years. I also have a wedding planning business that is still part of my daily uh, job description. Um, And I'm also back at the University of Florida earning my PhD and teaching event management. So uh, some say I'm mildly obsessed but uh events are something that just really i'm very passionate about
1: now i understand uh you do weddings
2: yes sir i do i'm actually at the ritz carlton amelia island today uh we had a tasting for one of our brides uh so that was lots of fun always a good time up here eating good food
1: you know i'm i'm going to the uh ritz carlton in um two weeks uh, for Wonderful. a legal conference the the Ritz Carlton and Amelia Island is one of my favorite places and I've been to some weddings there what a great place for a wedding right on the ocean
2: absolutely it's a beautiful property and I hosted corporate events um, just next door at the Omni Amelia Island for eight years so I I love this area it's just so beautiful
1: I want to hear a little bit about how's this wedding going to come off tell it where is it is it going to be inside outside all that and and are you moving do we have the the ceremony in one place and then another tell us how it's going to happen
2: Absolutely. So it's pretty classic for a Ritz Carlton uh, Amelia Island wedding. We have a outdoor ceremony out on the um, the lawn. Background is going to be the beach. Uh, they're going to move out over to uh, cocktail hour, which is going to be outdoors, and they're going to go into this beautiful ballroom for the reception. Um, I have just the most amazing couple. They are. So low key, they just wanna have a good party. Uh, And I I think it's really gonna be fun. Mom, actually, the mother of the bride, okayed a beer burrow today uh, for cocktail hour, which for those of you who aren't familiar, it is where we actually bring in a donkey who has these lovely saddlebags that have ice and beer and tequila. Uh, So that is going to be what we call one of our surprise and delight moments during uh, the cocktail hour.
1: Wow, are there any other surprise and delight moments we can share? (laughs)
2: At, we actually, today was the first day of the design phase of our planning. We plan in phases. So we start with all the core logistics, getting all the main vendors locked in. Then we spend a little bit of time on design. And then the last phase is actually executing and wrapping up all the loose ends before wedding day. So at this point, that's the main surprise and delight. Um, but I, my, my couple's really cool. They're really into baseball. They're really into golf. So I think we're going to have some fun add-ons in there as well.
1: Wow. How many folks are going to be attending this particular wedding?
2: This particular wedding, we're going to have about 200 um, attendees. Uh, the budget for this one, I think, is going to exceed 100000 So it's going to be a fun shindig.
1: Yeah. you. Well, <clears throat> as a father of the bride in the past, <laughs> I can tell you $100,000 doesn't go very far.
2: <laughs> it does not. 100% does not. And when I... <clears throat> When I talk to my students in class at UF um, about budgets for weddings, it's really funny to see their their eyes just kind of get really big when the, I tell them, oh, you know, if you wanted to have a, um, like a boxed lunch that is a sandwich and a little side of pasta salad, that's going to cost you $45 minimum plus 25% service charge plus 7% tax. So it's a $50 sandwich. Um, and that's, you know, that's just par for the course with, uh, you know, event food and beverage.
1: You know, it's, it's fascinating because um, I've always loved being a, a party planner myself. When I was in college, uh, I was a social chairman and the rush chairman for my fraternity. Love it. And so it's, it's in my DNA. As a matter of fact, going back even further, when I was uh, 15 years old, my parents went to Europe and left me alone with my uh, aunt, who was a degenerate gambler, and I set up a, a gambling casino, a little bit like Risky Business. And uh, it was it. great. We made a ton of money. I figured out it's always better to be the house.
2: It always is, 100%. And that's <laughs> that's one of the fun things about uh, hospitality, events, tourism, and everything. That's, that's my background, and it's... Um, something a lot of my students say, they start off as business majors, and they're like, you know, I like business, this is a lot of fun, but I need something more. I need, you know, something a little bit more dynamic. And then they discover events and everything that that can entail. Um, We have at our department at UF, um, a board member, like an industry advisor, uh, who is the GM of uh, Caesars Hotel in Las Vegas. And the indie let's see no formula one uh is doing a race out in vegas next year and they're doing some sort of special launch party at the caesars um they've got i'm sorry uh they've got a, a launch party going on and the budget for the launch party is over four million dollars so it what? gives you a lot of fun stuff to uh to play with wow
1: well that's great so tell me some of the um most uh, creative weddings you've been involved with
2: Ooh, that's a fun one. Um, so when I design weddings, my goal is to create a um, an event that really showcases the love story of my couples. So it's a lot of nods back to what makes them unique. Uh, so if they're foodies, we do really fun food elements. Um, we have custom, um, let's see, like welcome drinks that are champagne and you can put fruit in it and they're like in these fancy ice bowls. Um, we've had... Um one of my weddings last October uh, was a chinese american and ghanaian American uh couple, so we had uh ghanaian dancers come in and do a performance. Um, our bride changed uh out of the traditional wedding dress into a ghanaian uh wedding dress so lots of fun things like that that really just speak to who our couples are
1: so how do people get a hold of you? I say they have a wedding and they wanna do a, a fabulous uh, wedding. Uh, how do they get a hold of
2: you? So we, the easiest way to get a hold of me is through my website, so whitemagnoliaevents.com. Um We're also on Instagram if that's your preferred mode of communication. Uh, but yeah, that's that's how you can reach us.
1: Well, um, you know, at Melden Law, we frequently have um, events, uh, grand openings for offices or for. Uh, you know, events we, we took everybody over to the beach for three days, and our um, uh, office manager, Nikki Hadaway, did an incredible job to put four, forty five, fifty people together uh, in a destination somewhere and have it all work out seamlessly for three days was a big project, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, the amount of effort is always underestimated. For anybody who's new to events, you get into it and you're like, oh, yeah, I can do this. And then you realize all the moving parts, everything that's changing. Um, but honestly, like I would get bored if my job was the same every day. I'm one of those people that can't do repetitive uh, stuff. So I, I appreciate the challenges that pop up along the way. It keeps everything from getting monotonous for me.
1: So what do you do when a, a, a well-thought-out plan unravels?
2: Um, You make a spurt of the moment change. So uh, one of the things I tell my students is you can know everything that we teach you in the textbook. But the most valuable thing that you're going to need as an event planner, um, and honestly, this is true in any business, is being able to think on your feet and make quick decisions. So um, I had a wedding one time where the bride was very particular about everything uh and one of the groomsmen um he lost the pocket square uh for his his tux and the bride was having conniptions about it basically and uh so what we ended up doing is we went to the catering team and we said okay do you have a cream napkin that we can utilize for photos so that way we don't have to photoshop uh all of this in for all of the photos and that's what we did. So it's always just finding very quick, creative solutions to um, the most random problems ever. And granted, there are certain things that we can do. We can plan ahead. Um, my groom was supposed to bring uh, a laptop that, that we were going to run a presentation off of or something. He forgot it. And I knew he would. So I had extra laptops. So we we have seen things a couple times and we can kind of predict um, what may or may not go wrong and have plans in place. But truly, it all comes down to Let's just very quickly make a, a decision.
1: So do you have a rain plan for the wedding coming up?
2: Oh. Yes, we do. Uh, rain plan would be indoors, which is not ideal. Um, and, and truly, that's probably the most frustrating part for us as because our mother of the bride, our bride, the groom, they have this vision, right? And they've been working towards this vision for over a year. And then we have to say, okay, you have to make a call on whether or not we're going to risk you getting rained on outside or if we're just gonna go ahead and bring it inside to be safe. Um, That's truly a really challenging thing. And we can go above and beyond and get extra flowers and everything to make the inside feel more, you know, uh, beautiful, I guess, but, Yeah, unfortunately, I can control a lot of things. The weather is not one of them.
1: I know when my daughter got married in 2014, uh, we did the wedding at a historic building in Miami in the design district, and it had five stories and it was an atrium. So it was beautifully set up for the wedding. And they actually had a garden on the rooftop and we had the wedding Mm -hmm. all designed for the rooftop. And, uh, about, uh, two hours, uh, before the wedding, you know, the, the wedding planner calls me, says, you got to make a call. The ra- radar shows it's rain coming in and we got to, you know, we got to, you know, set up and do it. Actually, it was more that it was about two o'clock in the afternoon for a seven o'clock wedding is when we had to make Ooh, the call.
2: call.
1: Yeah, it was a fairly early call. However, it was raining at the time. It was already raining. And they were, and that may, that complicates it, right?
2: It really does. And a lot of the hotels are now putting clauses in their contracts that state that if you make the call to leave it outside and we have to move everything inside, there's a surcharge. Um, So we're, The hotels are trying to financially incentivize people to make the safer call. Um, So that way, you know, it it doesn't come down to event staff to scramble, to reset everything 30 minutes before a ceremony is supposed to start. Um, But, you know, it's it's hard.
1: I know we and we had it so, you know, designed really cool where we'd stop start on the top floor and uh, have the ceremony. And then after the ceremony move to the next floor down for cocktails mm-hmm. and uh, hors d'oeuvres, and then moved down the next floor. We had a, a living room set up for the late night <sighs> stuff and then moved down to the that. ground floor, you know? And so people were going to be, uh, you know, having all these, you re- it was historic building. It was called the Moore building uh, down in the design district in, in Miami. And so anyhow, it, the fact is, though, because we had a really good planner working with us, the guests that came in, it went off seamlessly because mm-hmm. we had a backup plan, and that right. made it happen, right? So you, you, that's what that's the reason, <clears throat> that's one good reason why you want an experienced wedding planner, right?
2: Absolutely. Having an experienced event professional for any event is a massive asset. And not only can we help you walk through a, you know, a a rain backup plan or something like that, but, uh, you know, we have background knowledge that you may not have, we can look at a contract and say, ooh, there's something here that's gonna bite you later. You know, let's let's mix this up. Um, my husband's an attorney, so I remember going through contract law and everything with him when he was in law school, and I still love contracts. So anytime I get a hotel contract, I'm like, ooh, let's go look at it. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of creative stuff that you can do uh, with contracts that protect you, that give you additional um, leeway uh, if something were to go wrong. and as a, an average person you may not have that expertise right so it aside from just being able to help you on site the planning having a planner for the planning part is very helpful but um, what we tell clients people in general and i'm not saying this just because i'm a, an event planner but um, there's two different types of wedding planning that we offer essentially one is full service planning And that's where we walk you through every stage of the planning process. Um, The other one is where we come in and manage your wedding. So you've done all the booking, you've picked all your vendors, the flowers and everything. And we tie up all the loose ends, make sure you haven't overlooked anything. And we're there on the day of to um, put out fires, right? We want to make sure that our... Not just our bride and groom, but all of their VIPs—the moms, the dads, the uncles, the sisters, the maid of honor—we don't want them running around having to put out fires, you know, and saying, "Okay, well, we need a a new, uh, you know, we have to sew this, or we have to go find a a pocket square for so and so, or whatever." That's our job. Uh, we want everybody to be able to relax and enjoy themselves, and that's part of what we do. Um, our services are what I would call experiential. So you don't just get a Planner, you get an experience um and all of our all of our content is geared towards that it's not just hey we're going to walk you through the logistics um, but we go one step beyond
1: well um i have to have you back on the show uh, raven it's been such a wonderful experience we're running out of time however white magnolia events just google it yes. right and yes, you will absolutely. find white magnolia events And um, I'll tell you, uh, I so love and respect what you do. It's so important because uh, events, when you dream of an event, you want it to uh, come off uh, perfectly. And uh, having uh, someone like Raven around, uh, you know, she has a list of 100 things that have gone wrong in the past and knows what to do in the event that that happens again. So um, thank you. Thank you uh, uh very much Raven uh, Chris Aoley, and uh, I want to thank Chris Fooley, right Chris, is that how you say it? Raven Chris Fooley
2: Chris Chris but honestly, it's Italian, we're American, whatever. <laughs> I would be absolutely delighted. In fact, one of my former students is on your team right now helping with some marketing outreach events. So um, I'd be delighted to help in any way that I can. And thank you again for the opportunity.